Hi, and welcome to Communicating Climate Change, a podcast dedicated to helping you do exactly that. I'm Dickon, and I'll be your host as we dig deep into the best practices and the worst offences, always looking for ways to help you and me improve our abilities to engage, empower, and ultimately activate audiences on climate-related issues. This episode features a conversation with youth climate activist and advocate of Indigenous perspectives, Kashoe Isaiah. It was recorded at the end of June 2023. Kashoe, who hails from Kenya's Maasai community, works to amplify the voices of Indigenous and local communities. He's a member of Fridays for Future Kenya, contributes to Penn State's UN-supported Global Youth Storytelling and Research Lab, serves as the country representative for Kenya at the youth-led Mock COP Summit, and is also the head of environment and climate change at Kenya's National Youth Caucus. He currently studies economics and finance at the Catholic University of Eastern Africa, focusing on climate finance. When we sat down to chat, Kashoi was wearing a red shuka, the traditional attire of Maasai warriors, or Morans. I mention this to give context to a story that he shares during the episode. Amongst other things, Kashoi and I discussed the indivisibility of nature and culture within the Maasai community, the role of indigenous perspectives in conservation and adaptation, and the power of stories to carry important information across generations. So, let's get on with it. This is Communicating Climate Change with Kashoe Isaiah. Good morning. Great to meet you. I will just jump in with the questions, if that's okay. Could you please introduce yourself and give us some idea of your background, your work, and your engagement with climate change? I'm a climate activist and a student at the moment, and also... I'm taking part in advocating for climate change in youth movements here in Kenya, mostly in terms of indigenous knowledge and also trying to amplify the need for indigenous perspective in climate action and also the role of my community in advocating for climate change. I'm the co-founder of my network. It's a network of local and even indigenous community here in Kenya that we run different projects and also trying to amplify the voices for this local community at the grassroots level and also internationally. Because most of these communities haven't gone to school, they don't have this access to maybe various platforms. And for us who have got access to this platform, it's our role and also our responsibility to also try to educate the world about this knowledge. The kind of projects that we do is all about climate education, resilience projects, regeneration. We try to educate these communities of concerning climate change because most of the time they don't even understand about the scientific part of climate change, we try to bring the message that uh, this climate change, this is what is affecting us, climate change affects gender, climate change affects health part, climate change affects maybe all aspects of the community. So through climate education, the community understands now that there's mitigation, this adaptation, this resilience, we have to do this. From your perspective, how can communication help mitigate the worst effects of climate change in the first place? Communication is the best way and also effective way of passing the message of climate change because most of the time you find there are those people that you don't get access to them. Maybe they are in rural areas, maybe they are in different parts of the world. I communicate on online platform and also try to educate people on climate change concerning the indigenous perspective. People from different parts of the world are so interested about learning this indigenous perspective through online advocacy, through showing what you have, through having social social media platforms and also displaying what you do, I think communication has been the best part 
Now, when it's come to grassroots level, you find that there are those who get access to social media. Maybe 70% of them get access to social media. If I post something, maybe people who have gone to school or who get access to maybe mobile phones, they get in contact with me. What are you doing this project? You're going to come to our village to do this. So I think communication is the best and also effective way that can also reach to people in, at the grassroots level. I talked to someone the other day and they said, even though the government sends out lots of posters with information about climate change on them, nobody knows how to read. So it's, it sort of doesn't work. You know, are there any, are there any examples like that where it, things just haven't worked? Sometimes you have to verbalize locally. You try to translate to the local language so that they can also understand. But most preferably, if you want to reach these people, you just use the indigenous perspective. How do they preserve biodiversity? How do they embrace nature? From that point, you can now bring the scientific facts and all that inside. Because if you just go straightforward with scientific knowledge, it may be hard for them to adapt and also try to understand. So you have to take the indigenous knowledge perspective and also try to combine them together. I was talking about my, with my grandfather about scientific knowledge about climate change. Right now, we're being told that they are, we are we're really crossing the earth boundaries. We're really crossing above the tipping points. Then he told me, I'm not understanding all about this. I had to go back to the, the knowledge that they have about indigenous perspective. And then he told me, ah, a long time ago, there, there was no pollution. We used to have a very beautiful land. We used to have this. Uh, there are a lot of uh, wild animals in this area. There were a lot of uh, these tree species, but now we have a lot of extinction. Then that moment now, he, he learned more about climate action and also he even educated me about the indigenous knowledge. So he was able to connect what you were explaining to him to things that he knew and understood from the past. People listening may not be so familiar with the traditional culture and practices and lifestyle of the Maasai. Maybe you could give some background there. Okay, that's a great question. In my community, we're pastoralists and we, we depend on livestock for our livelihood. When it gets into a moment whereby there was a drought period, you have to migrate from one place to another. Maybe sometimes the vegetation of the area is being affected. So what they used to do, if you move from one place to another, uh, if you get maybe water for the livestock and also the, the leaves, we, can, we could cut the trees, the branches of the trees, small branches without destroying all parts of the trees and also feeding them to the livestock. Uh, specifically, not every tree, because even in our community, we have trees that we don't feed to livestock. Yeah, we have specific trees that we respect. We don't cut them. So the Maasai have to move from one place to another, and also they have to move to a better place where they can get access to green pasture or green leaves. For the cows, if you cut the leaves and give them, and also have water, they are contented. In what ways has climate change affected the traditional way of life of the Maasai and how are they adapting to these changes? I think the climate change has affected in many ways. I remember in 2009, we had a very devastating drought that affected the community. Like I remember in my family, we didn't even have any cattle around. We had to start from zero again. And also other families lost their cattle. And that moment, most families separated. There were a lot of migration. We had to move from one place to another so that we can get pasture and even water for our livestock. Most young people in my village drop out of school and they have never gone to school up to now just because of migration. Most young people maybe who have gone to school, in those rural areas, school are far away from maybe villages, so you have to walk a long distance going to school and even by foot. At the same time, the high temperatures affect even the learning schedule of schools. I remember in my school, at 1 p.m., we don't get to our classrooms because of the high temperature. So you have to wait until 4 so that we can learn. 
and also you find that most of the time it has affected uh, the gender part of it. You find that most of the women are being affected by climate change. They have to take care of the families. They walk for a long distance fetching water for their families. In terms of health, maybe you cannot afford access to nutritional food and even water. Most of the time, we depend on biodiversity and most of the cultural practices are carried uh, alongside nature. So if nature is destroyed or even the species, the cultural part is gonna going to, to fade away. So I think climate change has really contributed to fading away of some cultural practices and also some aspects in terms of health, education, and also food system. How does the Maasai community understand and communicate the impact of climate change on their way of life amongst each other? I mean, you talked about you talking to your grandfather, but how would he, say, talk to uh, his friends about what's happening? The nature and also our cultural way connects each other. The same same way that we embrace our livestock, our, our cattle, everything that we have in our village is the same same way that we embrace nature and biodiversity. So the best way that our fathers used to communicate is through storytelling. Uh, we used to have storytelling programs in the village every day in the evening. So in the evening, you just sit by the fire and then your father is sitting on the other side. Then you, you could have stories. There's a story that about Morans who went to hunt a lion so that it can rain. So from such kind of stories, now your father can tell you, you learn that you have to do this we learn that our rivers are very important. We learn that the trees are also about to be cut down. He gives you stories, and then at the same time, uh, you get to learn a lesson from the story. And now from that moment, we learn more about how we can conserve our planet and how the indigenous knowledge is so important. But you've given us a taste of the story. You've got to tell us the rest of the story. Sure, <laughs> come on. <laughs> yeah, I can share one story, one story. So a long time ago in Maasai community, these people they used to have a long period of drought. So at that moment, the livestock died, people died of hunger, there was that. There are also a lot of diseases. So they had to send out the Morans to go and fight back so that it can rain. Becoming a Moran, this means that you have a very big responsibility of your community. You have to protect your family, you have to protect your father, you have to protect your young at that moment, you see like the Morans wear the red sugar, this one. The red sugar mean that, means uh, bravery, like victory. So when someone sees you, you are so brave. So you mean data to maybe anything in that ecosystem or anything in that environment. Uh, when they go to hunt a lion, they always arrange themselves in a line whereby they don't just scatter maybe... Uh, scatter themselves around maybe a bush or even maybe no they have to be in a line after searching for a lion they get to a point whereby uh, they spend 30 days in the forest looking for a lion and you don't have to get back to the village because now getting back to the village this means that you are weak you don't even want you are not a moran so you must persevere all challenges in the forest and stay there so after that now they get back to where they get the lion uh, 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 fortunately they got a lion and then now getting a lion you have to prepare yourself to kill that lion 
because it's not easy to kill a lion. So they spent a night preparing themselves. Definitely there's always a smarter person, maybe a smart guy out of maybe six people. So they know a person who is going to kill the lion and they know one of us may be killed by the lion. They always know that the first person may be the one who is killing the lion or maybe the one who is going to be, to be killed by the lion or the last person is gonna going to be killed by the lion or it's gonna going to kill the lion. And that's how it happens. One person, one Moran died. So when they brought back the head of the lion in the village, after some few weeks, uh, it all rained. So the Maasai was saying this lion was preventing rain, uh, the rain season from coming to maybe for us to get food and even maybe water for our livestock. And from that story, my grandfather told me that I have to be a champion for my community. You have to be a climate champion. According to that story, the Morans killed the lion so that it can rain. Now climate change is a new lion. What is the traditional understanding of the relationship between land, climate, the Maasai people, and how can this perspective inspire others to value their surroundings and nature? I think the, the general understanding about all this is that they, that's intimacy between a people, nature, and culture. So the same same way the Maasai respect their livestock is the same same way they respect the uh the biodiversity and also the nature bit among themselves because most of the time uh we have trees that we don't have to cut we don't destroy maybe rivers because maybe our livestock have to feed from there and you see like even if you go to the to those villages you find that most of the time you get to a point whereby there are some rivers or there are some streams of water whereby the local communities have conserved for the purpose of their livestock and all that so uh, on that point, you find that most of the biodiversity or most of the species are, are being protected and regards to the indigenous perspective because most of the rituals and ceremonies are being carried along these species in the forest, others in the rivers. So protecting the cultural beliefs and protecting even the cultural aspect contributes to a lot of biodiversity, nature, and also wildlife conservation. How do Maasai leaders, elders, and other important figures mobilize the community in response to climate change? Most of the time, these elders or leadership, most of their role was uh, during these ceremonies. In those special occasions, we had trees that we have to use maybe during uh, medicinal procedures and all that. And we had trees that we don't cut. So most of the time, the local leaders uh, try to educate their communities through indigenous perspective, the leaders pass the message that uh, we have to preserve this land and they set rules. If you want to sell this land or if you want to cut this tree, you have to seek permission from the local leader. So from that moment now, already a rule has been set there. So you don't have to destroy that biodiversity or that forest or that place or even cutting the tree without seeking permission. I remember my grandfather used to walk in the forest. He knows all trees in those forests, all unique trees that are medicinal plants. When he walked around, he could ask, who cut down that tree? I'm not seeing a certain tree which I saw the other time. 
who cut down that tree? The tree is cut down and no one has seek permission. And through those strict rules, they are passing the message. If the river is contaminated, he has to ask about who draw their bag or maybe something else in their stream because livestock has to feed on this. So I think also the, the matter of livestock keeping has also contributed in passing the message. I think that was the best way to pass the message through ceremonies and also setting rules and also occasions and also through the nomad way, the pastoral way of life. How are messages or communications about climate change that come from outside the community, how are they perceived? What, uh, what's been effective, if anything, at engaging people um, and what hasn't? There are many challenges even beyond climate change. Education challenges, we find that maybe in a village, the food insecurity, you can go to a place where people don't get access to food. So even when you do projects in the local communities, you have to find something maybe like a food, like maybe something that you can take to them because if you just go empty-handed and also trying to, to telling them, oh, this climate action, we have to do this, we have to run these projects, those people are hungry and you just telling them about climate action, they will not get to listen to you. So you find parents telling you most of the children went to school because that's where they can get food. So you have to send them to go to school so that they can get food because uh, these drought patterns is affecting our community. Now from that moment, you can see how they can relate on how you are trying to pass the message. So having food and telling them, are uh, these how food insecurity happens and you being affected by climate change, that's why you don't get access to maybe do farming for you to get food. And then from that moment, the community can perceive the message of climate action. So I think the challenges in the communities drive them to understand. I th I'm thinking about conversations I had with people for this podcast in the past. And one that jumps out at me is from a, a behavioral scientist. And I remember him saying, the actual message is not the most important thing. Everything else is the important thing. The timing, the language, the the channel, you know, like it like like we talked about with the there's no point making signs if nobody can read. There's no point trying to give someone a, a workshop if they're hungry. So the the message that you are waving around means nothing if nobody receives it. It's so easy to do it wrong. Yeah, because there's a lot of challenges, so you have to find a way of getting getting them to understand the mess, the real message because if you just go direct, they will not get uh, to hear you. So, yeah, you also have to turn these challenges into opportunities so that they can also get to perceive the message, yeah. What's the single most important aspect of communication that we, communicators, should be paying attention to uh, when we talk about climate change? Yeah, it, it, I think from a point of view is a fact that when people get the solution of their challenge, that's where the message is being communicated. Yeah, The real message is the solution. Yeah. What's the biggest mistake? that you see communicators make when attempting to engage people on climate change issues? The mistake that maybe we take as young people or maybe as communicators, most of the time, a large percentage of, of communication 
is being taken to maybe criticize maybe the governments, the corporations and all that. But now we rely a lot on getting solutions from other people than ourselves. I usually tell, tell young people in Kenya that we don't have to be crying every time. The government is not even taking part in maybe solving climate crisis. Most of the time I tell them, uh, visualize your action, visualize what you want to do at the grassroots level. Try to maybe bring a change on your community. And then from that moment now, you see the government coming through and also trying to support your projects, trying to be the solution at that moment. The mistake that we usually do, it depends on other people for solutions. I had a wonderful time talking with Kashoe, but what stuck with you from this conversation? What can you take from it and apply to your own work? For me, first of all, it's what I heard in Kashoe's story. It's not easy to kill a lion, just as it's not easy to overcome the challenges associated with global climate change. You cannot do it alone. You need friends with you, capable friends who you can trust, who are willing to give themselves completely to the service of this singular mission. You have to advance together in an organized way, shoulder to shoulder, without leaving anyone behind and without acting alone. You must tackle this challenge together, knowing full well that the consequences may be dire for one or all of you. Only then can you fulfill your duty to society. That's powerful stuff. For more on radical collaboration in the face of climate change, check out my recent episode with Lucy von Sturmer. Next was the fact that Kishoe emphasized first satisfying other needs in the respective audience, hunger, thirst, etc., before launching in with your message. Needs that intersect with climate change themselves and therefore lend some touch points for the impacted local people to relate to it. This reminded me of the power of framing, the need to highlight the aspects of the issue that are most relevant to the audience, rather than just throwing the whole giant abstract and unrelatable thing at them and expecting them to pay attention. So those are the things I'll be taking with me. But how about you? What did you hear? What will you be taking with you into your communications endeavors? Thanks to Kishoe Isaiah for sharing his time and insight with the show. It was great. You can find links to resources associated with Kishoe's work, the Maasai, and other related topics in the show notes. Thanks also to you for listening to Communicating Climate Change. You can find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts, or by subscribing so you never miss out. You can find Communicating Climate Change on LinkedIn too. And if you think the series would be of interest to friends or colleagues, why not point them in the right direction? Remember, each and every episode attempts to add to our toolkits, to help us develop the skills and insights that we'll need for this epic task. So be sure to stay tuned for more. For anything else, just head over to communicatingclimatechange.com. Until next time, take care.